Blood on the Tracks is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Phil Spector was a musical genius, one of the most successful record producers of all time. He is now sitting behind bars serving a 19 years to life sentence for murder. This is a story told by his so-called friends. This is Special Agent Paul Ramon with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, working case number 004-10-7419, case subject is Spectre Philip Harvey. This information pertains to the period ending September 15, 1966. Interview subject is Richards Keith, interview number 0-11-519-640, recall number 4, date is March 19, 2006. Chapter 3 Phil Spector and Keith Richards We were told that we couldn't talk to the girls. We couldn't even look at them, you know? Shoot a little glance in their direction. You know, hey there, baby, how you doing? We were polite boys, you know, but we fancied a little fun every now and then. It was like an edict outlawing fun before the fun even started. And the girls became like forbidden fruit for us. For me in particular, it was all about Ronnie. I took one look at her, heard one note from her angelic voice, you know, and it was, it was over. I knew I was going to break somebody's rule. I was going to look at her. I was going to talk to her. You know, I was a polite boy, mind you, but I wasn't that polite. Phil issued the no fun edict. You know, he was a man of prodigious jealousy. He telegraphed Andrew and Andrew Log Oldham, you know, Andrew was our manager and our producer at the time. And this was like 1964 or something. Andrew got the boot from Brian Epstein, you know, and he helped put the Beatles together, got them in their suits after their rough and tumble Hamburg days and all. He was just a hustler back then, still a kid. Anyway, Andrew got into some punch up with Brian and Brian cut him loose. Andrew didn't give a shit. It only made him stronger. He made us out of that punch-up. He made the Rolling Stones. 
And this is when I was calling myself Keith Richard. Drop the S. It was all calculation. And that was Andrew's bag. Andrew fancied himself the London version of Phil Spector. He dressed like a dandy, wore sunglasses inside, carried the attitude of a scorned genius like a big chip on his shoulder, you know? He thought rock and roll could be art. We weren't long for the tailored suits. We were polite boys, again, yeah, I know, I keep saying that. We were polite, but we weren't that polite. We didn't want to be the Beatles. We wanted to be whatever the opposite of the Beatles was. The black hat, all that. I got off track. I was talking about Andrew and Phil. So wait, I gotta back up a little more. And the Ronettes came over to England for a bit of a tour. And Be My Baby was still a big hit, so the Ronettes come to England and Phil taps us to open the shows. Finally, they're actually going to see the Rolling Stones. And before they even get there, before the plane from New York even touches down in Heathrow, Phil sends his telegram to Andrew. All it says is, keep the stones away from my girls. His girls, you know? That should tell you a lot right there. The man of jealousy. Like he owned them or something. He certainly thought he did. I'm sure what he meant by that telegram was more like, keep the stones away from Ronnie. He could give two shits about Estelle and Nedra. They arrived in London before Phil. That's why he sent the warning. Phil came a little later, wanted to make sure he didn't have to worry until he got there, you know? And so Andrew is very concerned, very aware of this demand of Phil's. And because he thinks so highly of Phil, wants to impress Phil, wants Phil to think he's cool. The girls arrive from the States and Andrew keeps coming around to me and Mick. Hello, boys, are you behaving yourself and all that? But from the moment I saw Ronnie, I knew all bets were off. Phil who, right? And she was a sight to behold, and her voice, her voice was just, this is magic. I got the same feeling all over my body, whether I was looking at her or listening to her sing, or she walked in a room or just standing there next to me. Phil arrived in London and had to put on the act, just for Andrew's sake, you know, make sure we could keep the gig, but I, I was doing all I could to talk to Ronnie with my eyes. All behind Phil's back, mind you. I was a shy boy, I really was. And Ronnie was a shy thing herself. I shot her a glance every chance I got, she, she received them. Pretty soon, she was shooting them back. Phil was like a stern headmaster that you had been warned not to cross. You know, heads down, lads, pencils up. Quit the snickering, headmaster's coming. You could feel the pressure of his gaze, the weight of his presence. As soon as he was off the plane and backstage at the venues we were playing. This is our second UK tour. I think he quickly got a whiff of me and Ronnie looking at each other the way we were. And he decided that we wouldn't see a soul after she stepped off the stage that night. I mean, you know, talk to Ronnie, she'll tell you the stories. Right there, what I told you was like an omen of things that were to come between those two. That insecurity was so quiet. The lengths to which he would go to keep people away from her. You heard a lot about Phil Spector, but we probably heard more than most. What with Andrew's obsession with him and all. Heard all about his genius, about the way in which he was turning pop music on its ear. But to us, to me, he was an obstacle, a barrier. I had to find my way around, over, under to the side. You learn these things, you know? You learn how to skate in unnoticed, how to work under the radar. I mean, you don't get into the kind of trouble that the Stones got into without knowing how to play the system, if you know what I'm talking about. I knew that Ronnie would be mine. 
I just needed to figure out how to play Phil. So speak of playing Phil, we played a lot with Phil, quite a bit in the studio. You know, my interactions with him weren't just limited to dodging his jealous gaze and inciting his jealous rage. When I think of Phil, I think of Ronnie, and well, I think of Ronnie often. So those memories are right there, man, right up front, vivid. But I forget that Phil was there with us more often than you'd think he was in our formative years. And he wasn't producing us, you know, Andrew was producing us, and Phil was there at Andrew's behest. Phil was oddly unfilled in those moments. He wasn't trying to control anything, he wasn't trying to put his wall of sound stamp on us, anything like that, no. He was just one of the boys, a fly on the wall, a fly on the wall who was given a bass to play or some maracas to shake. <laughs> that's Phil on bass on Play With Fire. Well, it was detuned guitar, you know, the guitar made to sound like a bass. That was in LA, 65, I think, RCA Studios. I played acoustic guitar, Mick played tambourine, and then Jack Nietzsche was on harpsichord. Jack Nietzsche, you want to talk about a true genius? Let's talk about Jack for a minute. The true genius in Phil Spector's studio. Phil just lived vicariously through Jack, you know, his arrangements, his feel, his look, his whole, you know, his, his Jackness. Jack had it, boy. Phil wanted it. But I'll come back to Jack. I'll come back to Jack later. Now, Phil, Phil was a, Phil's a great player, very understated, very, very few people know this. They think he just stood there with his dark sunglasses on and his arms folded, you know, lording over the studio like some grenade that could go off at any time. Not that that wasn't true, you know, but he was a very simple, very tasteful player. That's him on Play With Fire, that bass part. That's Phil, that's Phil Spector, man. He was really into the Stones. If he had known how much I wanted to sneak off into the dark at the end of the street with Ronnie, you know, he may not have liked us so much, but he liked us. He really did. He really liked us. The Stones have shot to the top of the charts. Their music heard everywhere. Their faces known by everyone. Here in the flesh, Keith Richard and Brian Jones. And the drummer, Charlie Watts. When he was in the UK with the Ronettes on that tour, you know, he took a meeting with the head of Decca Records, Sir Edward Lewis, a proper English chap, you know, Sir Edward. He took Andrew with him as a buffer. He wanted to release the Stones music on his Phillies label in America. So he goes into the stuffy old English office. The wall is full of all that antiquity, you know, and it makes his ass, makes his pitch, you know, really a begging session more than anything. Sir Edward Stonewall Phil. Even with Andrew standing there, Phil's honorary Brit to butter him up. What's this, you know, an American pilfering our lads? I won't stand for it. England won't stand for it. That sort of thing. All very, very proper, no emotion, very British. It was like David asking Goliath for a favor if David thought that he was Goliath, right? Phil was fucking wild, man. That's how he was. He was like that. And so Phil and Andrew left that meeting with nothing. Nothing from Sir Edward. And they were just, you know, in a state, pissed. Phil's angry at the stuffy old fart with the balls to say no to him, you know? Said no to the Phil Spector, man. Said no right to his face. And Andrew's angry that he's made himself look like a fool in front of his hero. And neither of them are happy. 
two of them, they came from that turd of a meeting with Sir Edward straight into the studio with us where we were recording Not Fade Away. Phil took out some of his frustration on a pair of maracas. Those maracas you hear in the song, those are him. He was able to take his mind off things for a few moments when Mick dragged him into the other room to write the B-side little by little. But you could tell that the meeting was just bristling under his skin. He had been rebuffed and he was told no and he was used to being in control, you know, to having the last say. He told people how to sing and how to play, when to sing and when to play. So I know it stung him. We had drank as much of the drink in the studio that we could that night and the atmosphere got loose. Call it real gone back then when we get to that place. You know, real gone, brother. Phil wasn't taking part in the drink, but he was more than ready to let loose. He was a little man, pent up with all sorts of big-time anger, ready to unleash, get revenge, that type of thing. And we started riffing on this blues shuffle, very up-tempo. That sort of thing, you know? Uh, like a boy from New York City. Phil starts ad-libbing on the track, starts singing about Andrew and how he fucks all night and sucks all night. You know, he sings, Taste that pussy and it tastes just right. And the band is just rollicking along, right? The well-oiled locomotive, you know, we're there, we're there. Every, even with the pints, even with the booze, you know, Mick starts this calm response with Phil. We had it, man, it was firing. Mick goes, yes, Andrew, and Phil responds, suck it, Andrew. And Mick shouts, go on, Andrew, and Phil responds, fuck it, Andrew. And then Phil takes it to the next level, you know, he sings something like, come and get it, little Andrew, before Sir Edward comes and takes it away. Phil starts doing this impression of a blubbering Sir Edward, just this atrocious English accent. Almost incomprehensible, you know, and he's going on about himself and the Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones are a great fucking group. What a load of balls. And you know what, man? Phil would have pulled the same shit if Sir Edward himself had been sitting right there in front of him. He wasn't drunk, he wasn't high, but he, he didn't give a damn, you know? The man did not care. And if you found yourself on his bad side because, well, you know, you said no to his request to bring the Rolling Stones to America, or you made come fuck me eyes at his girls, well, shit, man, you better watch your back. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. I found myself in Ronnie's room one day on that UK tour, Strand Palace Hotel. She was packing to head off to the next stop. I don't even remember how I did it, you know, I got into her room. It was a bit of magic, you know, a slight trick of the hand. Phil looked away, Phil walked away, something Phil made like a tree and I made my move. I was only 20, you know, my turtleneck shirt all the way up to my chin, my hair down over my ears. Ronnie was 20 also, a couple of kids. Every move she made shot electricity through my bones. The way she smelled, the way she smiled, the way she packed her shirt into a suitcase on the bed in the hotel room. I loved her, you know? Listen, man, a gentleman never tells, you know what I mean? But I will say, we got around to doing more than just looking at each other when we could find ourselves alone without the watchful eye of Phil Spector bearing down on us. I was a bit afraid of his wrath, of his jealousy. I'm afraid of what he could do to me, to my career, you know, if he found out. Because he was a music industry unto himself at that time. You know what I mean? 
I guess the part of me that didn't give a fuck beat out the part of me that was concerned. You know, we weren't the anti-Beatles for nothing, mate. We did the opposite of what was expected. The world wanted smooth and we were sharp. The world wanted clean and we were dirty. And Phil Spector expected that the world would obey his orders and leave Ronnie alone, but I'm not the world, am I now? And it wasn't just his girl that he was all prickly about, right? Phil wanted my hair too, man. He was probably more conscious of the fact that my hair was better than his and the fact that I wanted to get close and personal with a singer, with his girlfriend. The man was wearing rugs at that point, even back then. Not fooling anyone, you know? He got off the plane at Heathrow. His hand shot right to the top of his head and all that wind. No wonder he had such control issues. Know what I mean? Ronnie told me later how insecure Phil was of his receding hairline, how jealous he was of me. Later that year, the Stones finally get across the pond for our first tour of America. Now, who do we call? Ronnie, of course. I made sure I found a number for her that Phil wasn't watching. It was her mother's number, I think. We went up to Spanish Harlem, the places Ronnie had told me about. The places I had read about. Mick and I crashed on her mother's living room floor. She made us bacon and eggs in the morning. We were on our best behavior, of course. I always defaulted to my better behavior around Ronnie. We piled into a red Cadillac with the girls and went to Jones Beach out on Long Island. America, man, it ripped through my hair, America did. I had been listening to American music for so long that I felt like I knew the place already, but it was, it was different being there. America wasn't all like New York. We weren't received with open arms just anywhere. Cop had Brian and me nearly pissing ourselves in Omaha. Well, we were pissing in the men's room of the auditorium, holding paper cups of hooch when he drew his piece on us and told us we couldn't be drinking in a public building. That's when I bought my first gun, on that tour, at a truck stop. Back in those days, the cops were always coming for musicians on this charge or that. You had to be ready, ready to defend yourself. And shit, you know, I never knew if I was about to turn a corner with Ronnie's hand in mine and come face to face with Phil. Can you imagine? Because I did. I imagined it all the time. Let the scenarios play through my head. Phil Spector, so jealous. He had people, he had bodyguards and errand men and yes men. He had deep pockets. He had some guy on stage standing right there. So when the Ronettes were done and they began their exit, this guy could swoop in and take Ronnie by the arm and keep her away from any and all swinging dicks in the general vicinity. Phil had power, felt that. He felt it when he was around, you felt it when he wasn't around. And I didn't have power, man. All I had was a bit of a chip on my shoulder back then. A heart that was bursting for Ronnie Bennett. And a, you know, fuck you attitude towards authority. I've always had that. And you know why Phil Spector had power, right? Because he was so damn insecure, man. I didn't see Phil at all in New York, but I, I felt him. Ronnie took me and Mick to see James Brown at the Apollo. I spent a little too much time looking for Phil's face in the audience. I think it was an absent presence that a lot of people felt. Possibility of Phil, you know? What could be? So maybe it wasn't meant to be with me and Ronnie. Maybe I should have stuck my neck out a little more. Worried about things a little less. And there was also the entire body of the Atlantic Ocean in between us most times, too. That made things impossible. It's the kind of regret that men write books about, right? So Ronnie got a little too close to Phil, believed him a little too much, believed in him a little too much. 
thought he would continue to champion her as an artist, you know? She let herself feel love, though I don't know if love was really what she was feeling. The last time I ever saw Phil Spector, I just felt a deep longing for what could have been. What could have been for me, sure, but what could have been for Ronnie, too? That maybe we all would have just been better off if I had swept her right off her feet, told Phil Spector that she didn't belong to anybody. September 1966, London. Ike and Tina Turner's album, River Deep, Mountain High, is released by London Records in the UK. The album was scheduled for release in the States on Philly's Phil Spector's label, but it was pulled at the last minute when the title track, also produced by Spector, bombed. Phil Spector's latest Wagnerian pop opus took Tina out of her comfort zone and took Ike out of the picture completely. In the U.S., it was a thunderous dud that could be heard from coast to coast, and it wasn't just because the thing was drenched in an echo chamber. Across the pond, though, it was a different story. The single, River Deep, Mountain High, peaked at number three on the U.K. charts. London loved it, and so the full-length LP with the same name was soon released by the very man who had turned down Phil Spector's offer to bring the Rolling Stones to America just a few years prior. London Records, an offshoot of the mighty Decca Records, released Phil Spector's new single by Ike and Tina. Sir Edward Lewis had come to Phil's aid after all. Keith Richards picked up his copy of the album after being blown away by the single. Listening to Tina's hurricane vocal, he was struck by the same feeling he had when he first heard Ronnie Bennett, who would go on to become Ronnie Spector. He held the LP jacket in his hands, noting the dreamlike images of Ike and Tina in full power couple pose on the front. He turned it over and there on the back cover, standing in between Ike and Tina with his hands greedily grasping for control knobs in the studio, was the man who had stood between him, Keith, and a girl he deeply loved, Ronnie. Spectre's face there on the LP made the bad memories bubble up. And the memories stung. They curdled at the top. The thoughts of what was or what would never be. But Keith Richards, with an S, didn't live in the past. Keith Richards barreled forward. He could barrel forward without Phil Spector just fine. He didn't need the bad memories. He did need Ike and Tina Turner. England loved them. Keith loved them. Mick loved them. The Stones wanted them on their stage. Maybe more than Phil Spector wanted them in the studio. The Stones reached out and found Ike and Tina irritated and stuck following their ill-fated pairing with the famed Phil Spector. And they needed a change. They needed a direction. They needed an audience. Keith, Mick, and the rest of the boys could offer them all three. The Stones invited them to travel abroad, fill the opening slot on their UK tour, and get the audience they deserved, bask in the applause, escape from under Phil Spector's thumb. And they answered the call, opened the tour, and then, in 1969, they opened for the Stones again in America, the tour that included the infamous show at Altamont Speedway in California, the one that ended with chaos and death. 
Keith traded war stories with Ike and Tina, war stories involving their encounters with Phil Spector, war stories told in secret because Phil Spector remained powerful and Phil Spector remained a man of prodigious jealousy. And there were times when Keith learned more than he wanted to know, times when he delved deeper into the mind of Ike Turner, deeper than he had thought possible. Ike talked and that mind just opened up. Its recesses were dark, its desires were darker. Sometimes, their conversations went too far. Like the time Ike pulled the gun from his pocket and ordered Keith to show him how to play in open tuning. Show me that five-string shit, motherfucker. Keith's jaw dropped when he watched Ike take the same gun and pistol whip one of his band members. And the more Keith listened to Ike talk, he realized that the guitarist, the producer, the man who maybe invented rock and roll, had a lot more in common with Phil Spector than he thought. And you know, cut from the same sort of stock that can only lead to blood on the tracks. This episode of Blood on the Tracks is brought to you by 27 Club, a podcast that I host on musicians who died at the age of 27. Season two featuring Jim Morrison is now available, as is season one with 12 episodes featuring Jimi Hendrix. Subscribe to the 27 Club on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, this episode was also brought to you by Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast also hosted by yours truly. Episodes on the Rolling Stones, Jerry Lee Lewis, Cardi B, The Grateful Dead, Jay-Z, Prince, and many, many more are all waiting for you right now. Just search Disgraceland on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcast. All right, this episode of Blood on the Tracks was written by Zeth Lundy and scored and mixed by Matt Bowden. Hosted by me, Jake Brennan. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker and Henry Lunetta. Blood on the Tracks is produced by myself for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Sources for this episode are available at doubleelvis.com on the Blood on the Tracks series page. If you like what you hear, please be sure to subscribe to Blood on the Tracks on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to win a free Blood on the Tracks poster designed by Nate Gonzalez, then leave a review for Blood on the Tracks on Apple Podcasts. You can hashtag Blood on the Tracks on social media, leave your review there, and we'll pick two winners each week and announce them on the Double Elvis Instagram page. That's at Double Elvis. Go ahead and give that a follow. All right, as always, you can find me blabbing about other crazy rock stars on Disgraceland and 27 Club, and you can talk to me per usual on Instagram and Twitter at DisgracelandPod. Rock a roll. Thank you. Oh, dang it. <laughs>